Welcome, Patrick. I'm very happy to have you in this lead podcast session with us. Patrick McLeany is the former CEO of Hawk Architecture and Design Firm. Uh, he is the current chairman of Building Smart, and he just finalized a book called Designing a World Class Architecture Firm. It was published last year by Wiley. And uh, his topics on the book were very much aligned with the JCI values and the ideas and the thoughts we have in the organization about leadership and good leadership. So I'm very happy to have you here today with us record this podcast. Thank you. I, I'm very happy and excited to see so many young people uh, that are interested to learn. One, when we were preparing for this just 10 minutes ago, I learned to my great surprise that the junior chamber was started in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I started my architecture career. And that's where my firm HOK began. So there's an interesting connection. But I'm very happy to see you here. And I hope that uh, all of you will be bold and ask many good questions uh, when the time comes for questions, because that's my, my favorite part is helping young people learn and understand something. And they're, all the questions are always good. There, there are no bad questions. So please think of questions as we proceed today. Uh, I'll do my very best to answer them. Thank you. On my side, I was reading your book. And one of the kind of interesting topics that came out of the book was the long-lasting history of Hawk. It, it has outlasted its founders. It has yes. even outlasted the second generation of founder families. And yes. uh, your career in the company also expanded over 50 years. So would you yeah. have something to say how to create organizations like that? How to build the long-lasting? Yes. Uh, I spent uh, 50 years, exactly 50 years uh, at HOK. Uh, I started as a junior designer straight from university in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a, a medium-sized city in the middle of the U.S., in the almost the geographic center. And uh, I grew up inside of HOK because the firm was organized to allow this to happen. And I, again, I'm an architect. It doesn't matter if you're an architect or if you're a manufacturer or if you're providing a service of some kind or software, the key to everything, everything is people. If you have a firm, a business of any kind, the most valuable thing in the business is always your people. The founders of, my, of HOK, the three men, uh, George Helmuth, Gio Obata, and George Kassebaum, had this real vision about making a firm that would attract and keep young people and so that people give people a career inside the firm, that they didn't want people, once they had learned something inside, they didn't want people to feel it, that they had to leave the firm to continue their career, that they could stay and grow up. And as they grew and learned, there would be advancement opportunities inside the firm. This was quite a revolutionary change from the way architecture was practiced and many professional services. Usually in the field of architecture, architecture firms are started by someone. They usually put their name on the door, Joe Smith, architect. Maybe they have a partner. But when Joe Smith finally reaches retirement age, they close the door. The people that were working for Mr. Smith, they leave. There's no firm left. 
Our founder, the George Helmuth, the founder, was the son of an architect. And his father and his uncle practiced architecture in St. Louis when he was growing up as a boy in the early 1900s, more than 100 years ago. He watched his father and his uncle struggle. They both they were both good architects. They both loved design. Neither one knew how to run a business. He watched them. They would get a project to design something, a building for someone. They would hire some draftsmen. A draftsman is an old term. It means people who drew on pieces of paper. And they were men, one, almost 100% exclusively men, 100 years ago. There were no women, almost none, in architecture 100 years ago. And so the, his father and his uncle, he would watch, he would hire some draftsmen to help them do the work. And as the draftsmen worked under their guidance, their leadership, these young men became better at what they were doing. They began to understand more about how to put together a project. And their, so their skills increased. At the end of the project, when it was finished, if his father and his uncle had no new work, they let everybody go. So he watched this, George Helmuth, our founder, he watched this happen several times when he was a boy. The firm would grow and then shrink and grow and shrink. He, he called it a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. And when the firm was growing, the family had money, they could uh, live well. And when the firm was shrinking, there was no money. And so it was time for everyone to tighten their belts. Young George Helmuth, our founder, said there must be some good way to create a professional service firm or any business that doesn't have this roller coaster ride, this boom and bust, boom and bust. And how can he do this? Then he had a bad fortune. He, he went to school and studied architecture in St. Louis and graduated in 1930. 1930 in the U.S. and most of the world was the beginning of what was called the Great Depression. It's uh, ancient history now, maybe, but it was one decade, very slow economic activity. It was difficult for people to keep get and keep jobs. He wanted to work for his father and his uncle, but they would not they couldn't, they didn't have any work. They couldn't hire him. So he ended up getting a job as a junior architect for the city of St. Louis, designing park benches and bus stops and simple things. He made up his mind. He was going to study the art of how you build a practice and keep it, keep it stable through a whole series of experiences. He, he wrote a position paper. We would call it today, maybe a white paper. Then it was uh, written with a typewriter, 20 pages. He, he laid out his strategy for the ideal, what he called depression-proof firm, a firm that would do well no matter what was going on in the world, in the economy, and so on. And uh, there were four principles about this that are, I think apply to any business that any of you would like to engage in whether it's software or some other kind of business or being an architect. And here are the four principles. The first most important principle is people. It's extremely wasteful, George Helmuth learned, to hire someone and spend the time and energy to train them and pay them a salary and then throw them away 
if you have no new work. So he built his firm on his, his principles on the idea that you must attract and keep good people and give them the opportunity to have a career inside your firm. That was revolutionary thinking in, in that day. People didn't think about work like this. So principle number one, all about people. Principle two, well, if you want to attract and keep good people, that requires work. You have to have steady workload. How do you do this? Again, in those days, architects uh, thought that marketing themselves or advertising or calling on clients was somehow not professional. And so architects did not do this. But Helma said, well, we must let our clients know that we're there and that we're ready to serve them. So he said, we need full-time marketing to make a firm succeed. And it's marketing so that clients know we're there and can serve them. That was principle two. Principle three is maybe the most interesting for all of you. He said, we have to be as diverse as we possibly can be in the kinds of things we can do. Many architects in those days knew how to design just one thing, maybe schools. So if you design schools and there's work, if people need schools, you can stay in business, but maybe there won't be the need for schools some year, then what will you do? So his idea was to diversify the practice of the firm, schools and churches and houses and office buildings and everything. Everything you can imagine is a design challenge. If you wanna be a successful firm, you have to see opportunity in every kind of project that there is to do. So don't be so focused in one type of building that maybe that building will go away and so will you. So you have to be diverse. And he extended the idea of diversity in two other important ways. The world was just beginning to use air travel so that architects or anyone else could get on an airplane and go to another city and offer their services. Before this time, architects practice just in their own locality. And many architects, even today in the United States and Europe and around the world, they still practice locally. They don't think about, well, maybe if there's nothing to design in my, my city, if I go to another city, I can find some more work and keep my good people busy. So geographic diversity was the second part of that diversification principle. And he extended ge geography. His idea was, we don't want to just have an office in one city. We need to be in several cities. So if work is slow in Helsinki, maybe I can have some work in Berlin or Paris. And uh, so geographic diversity. I would suggest to all of you young people, of course, today with the internet, everybody can work everywhere because it's very easy to connect up just like we're doing with this seminar. Your clients can be and your services can be provided anywhere in the world, if you, if you offer the kind of service that can be, where you can connect with people on platforms like Zoom. But this was long before the internet. The, the other diversification that Helmuth began was to diversify the kinds of service offerings the firm could do. In the case of architecture, there are architects who design buildings, but there are also engineers who do the engineering for buildings. That's a design service. And there are also interior designers that design the insides of a building and landscape architects who design the outside. 
and planners and consultants who help clients develop a program, a brief, or what their building should be. So he said we should be as diverse as possible in the kinds of service offerings we make because maybe a client will not need a building this year, but they might need a master plan or they might need a feasibility study. So we should learn how to do everything. And the important thing about that was the client, be able to give the client, find an opportunity with your client to do anything that that client needs. He didn't say this, but he meant it. People are his most important thing, but clients, without clients, you're nothing. Everybody needs clients or customers. And then finally, he had a fourth principle. It was, again, people, attract and keep good people, full-time marketing, diversification in every way possible. And the fourth principle grew out of his experience watching his father and his uncle. And I'll tell you a little story. His father and his uncle were brothers, and they ran their firm together, but their partnership in their firm was one of convenience. Uh, the two brothers did not get along that well. Both brothers wanted to design. That's what architects love to do. So if one brother won a client, a, a commission for a project, that brother got to design it, and the other one had to assist. And they would have constant conflict over this, both wanting to design, neither wanting to assist. And Helmut's idea about this was to avoid conflict in a firm, you should diversify your leadership and have your leaders focus on one thing. So he developed a, a three leadership idea, one leader in an architect firm. And for all of you, for something other than architecture, this will vary, but the idea is the same, that one architect will be the designer. One architect will be the marketer looking for work. And the other architect will be the assistant helping the design to be turned into an actual building. So he divided the leadership up and he said, you know, if you specialize as a leader in designing or developing a building or marketing, if you do it every day, every day, you get very good at it. So you can develop an expertise about this. And his brother, his father and his uncle never did. They always did everything. So they did a little bit of everything, but never got to be expert in anything. So that was his idea to develop a, what he called a depression-proof firm. And he eventually started, it's a long story, it's in my book, he eventually started the firm that I joined 12 years after it began. It was just in one office still in St. Louis, Missouri. I, as a young man, thought I, I would work there for a few years, get some experience, get myself uh, licensed as a ar professional architect, and then go somewhere else and maybe start my own business or join somebody else. Every time I got interested in leaving, HOK presented me with another growth opportunity, a promotion from junior designer to senior designer, an opportunity to work in a different city. I was transferred first from St. Louis to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then finally transferred to San Francisco, where I am today. In fact, when I came to San Francisco, it was so beautiful. I said, I don't ever want to leave. And I live there today, although in my career at HOK, I I flew around the world many hundreds of times, lots of, uh, lots of airplane time. They, HOK gave people the chance to grow up inside the firm. And I'm, I grew up and it took 50 years. I started as a junior designer, senior designer, 
Then I became a project consultant and then a project manager. That was a big change. And then a project manager, a senior project manager for very large projects. Then I was given the leadership job in running the San Francisco office. And then finally, I was given a job to run the Pacific Rim offices. That's the West Coast of, the, of North America and, the, and Asia, East Coast, China and Japan and so on. And then finally joined the executive committee and uh, finally became CEO. If you build a firm like this, it will outlast you and it will last, outlast your, your successors. Uh, HOK is now, we started in 1955, so it's now 60 five years old, is that correct? I think my math is right. And we're now in the fourth and fifth generation of leaders. And the other interesting thing about diversity is this, because I see some young women today and some people of color, which I think is fantastic. HOK today, HOK began as almost 100% men. Today, HOK is 51% women and 49% men. And the women are in all positions, including they're leading some offices, they're leading design. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman in the leadership of the firm, not the top leadership, but just under it. So uh, why? It's because you give people a chance to grow and you don't really, uh, if you're in a leadership position, you will find as you're growing, you need good people. And if they're good and they happen to be women, that's fine because you're looking always for people who can do the work. Or if they happen to be white or black or pink or green, I don't care. I just want people that can do the work and can work harmoniously inside the firm. I'll just tell you, this is a long segment for me, but let me just tell you one other little thing. This firm's so special, it applies exactly to all of you. If you're building a firm, you have to learn that one lesson is you need to have a firm that is harmonious on the inside. It's a team where people are all working toward a common purpose, like a team in a sport, all respecting and liking each other. And if they're harmonious on the inside of the firm, they're able to compete outside the firm much better. And you will need this because the world is built on competition. You have to be the best at something. And in order to be the best, you have to have uh, no friction inside the firm is your ideal. So that's a very long-winded answer. I, I maybe it's a two-question <clears throat> podcast then but uh, I, i think there was very good topics there and um, uh, as you say the company has grown diverse from from the diverse interest of the founders to a very diverse organization with yes. present uh, done projects in almost 100 countries so far and yes. uh, if i remember correctly the current employee number was around 2000 almost Yes, 2,000 employees. When I left in three years ago, yeah. uh, when I repurposed, because I'm not retired, I'm repurposed. I'm, I'm still working, doing other things. Uh, HOK worldwide worked on every continent in that year that I stepped down, uh, every continent except Antarctica. Yep. The firm did large and small, from very big to very small, about 4,000 projects each year. And uh, the firm was in 27 locations. So there's that geographic diversification. And like I said, the firm was almost equal men and women, a few more women than men. Yep. And uh, that diversification is continuing to this day. I'll just give you one example. Uh, HOK became very famous as a designer of sports stadiums 
around the world. When you think about sports, you know, I know in, in Europe, I think most of Europe in Europe today, sports, a uh, very popular sport is what you call football and what we call soccer. But we also have, and you do too now, basketball and baseball and uh, ice hockey and so on. Those are all different shapes that require different expertise. So in the sports world, we developed experts because they did it every day in baseball stadiums, soccer or football stadiums, tennis arenas and basketball arenas and so on. So clients began to ask for, well, I, if I'm going to spend money to design, to have a building designed, I want somebody with experience. So Helmut's original idea about diversification led to specialization inside the firm. So people became expert at something. They weren't forced to do it. You, you had a choice. If you wanted to specialize in sports design, you could do that, or uh, airport design, aviation, or research laboratory design, or schools. But it meant that the firm was stronger because there were people with good, deep knowledge about how to do something. And again, this applies to every business besides architecture. And I think also there's uh, currently we live in an age where we have a global crisis ongoing. But yeah. we have also larger changes happening on the background, digitalization. And yeah. I think the adapting to change has been one of the strong <clears> points <throat> of HOK. For HOK, the first digitalization happened when the paperwork stopped. So yes. uh, maybe you have something to say of that, how to keep the people in that kind of yes. large scale that actually changes the whole industry way of working. Yes. Um, there are two, maybe two things about this. And again, I think, Every business needs to do some of this. We had a big, rev when I joined HOK, all the architecture and designing work was paper and pencil, the traditional way. And it was before the digital revolution. The only computers then were in universities and research centers. And finally, uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it became clear that the computer at last reached the architect. I led a, an evolution inside the firm where we changed from drawing on paper to designing inside the computer. It was revolutionary idea that, oh, everyone in the firm needs a computer and we need a firm-wide network and we need firm-wide email and we need a new thing called website and uh, we need an internal website so we can all communicate with each other and get good common information. These are revolutionary. That's now 25 years ago and it was expensive and I remember the CEO of HOK at that time, my predecessor said, well, Patrick, this is going to be expensive to invest in this technology. And I said, actually, no, it's not expensive. People are expensive. Technology is cheap, inexpensive. You, get, you need to give your people the very best technology because they will be more efficient, more effective architects or engineers and so on, if you give them the best tools. So HOK was an early pioneer in getting digitally able, digitally agile. Um, and that's continued to this day. When the coronavirus uh, occurred last March, uh, when the, almost the whole world shut down, HOK pulled everyone out of our offices and sent them home with their computer through a whole series of, uh, and our IT department worked really hard, but everybody at HOK is connected and everybody at HOK is working. And people have learned how to work from home more and how to collaborate, especially in teamwork, how to collaborate digitally now. And it's actually been quite wonderful to watch because people 
there's no there's no distance problem. There's some time zone problem, but people at HOK are working with their colleagues around the world, and maybe somebody has to stay up late at night or get up early in the morning, but we're having some wonderful collaboration that's enabled by technology. So that's that's a huge benefit. And I think that once the coronavirus is pandemic is, is over, and I think it will be, I've got my two vaccinations, very happy about that. Uh, it's one benefit of growing older, you get the vaccination first. But I think that once the pandemic is finished, people will find very fluid work relationships, some in an office together and some working from home or working from a hotel room or maybe on the beach in Hawaii. Uh, all of those things are, are just fine. Uh, maybe it's uh, mothers with young children that can continue to work, shared work. Those are things that are happening now at HOK and have been happening, enabled again by technology. So that's technology is one big thing. The other big thing that really changed HOK forever occurred about 1990. The board of directors had gathered to discuss how to grow and expand and diversify the business, which is a conversation we had many times over the years. And we had an after-dinner speaker, Dr. Peter Raven, and Peter Raven is a world-famous botanist. He's a plant specialist. And he ran the botanical gardens at, at, in St. Louis, Missouri Botanical Gardens. And Peter Raven was an original environmentalist. And after we had our nice board dinner, he stood up as our guest for the evening and without notes, spoke for one hour. And he basically painted a picture of Mother Earth big round globe that we all share, this huge, big round ball. It took us centuries to discover that it was round. We thought it was flat, but it's round. And that all of all living things exist in this very thin layer at the surface, a little bit below the surface and a, and a few uh, kilometers high above the surface. That's it. That's, that is our world. That's where we live. And uh, he also explained that as a botanist, he got an early grasp of the interdependence of plants and animals and plants and animals with each other, that humans, as we have grown more capable of doing things with machines and so on, we have done a pretty bad job of taking care of our earth, partly because we didn't understand things and then partly because, well, there was money to be made. He challenged us as architects. He said, what's your vision about this? Do you want to build design buildings that look good or do you want to design buildings that work with nature? Do you want to design buildings that, that consume a lot of energy to heat and cool or buildings that take a little energy to heat and cool? And do you want to design buildings of materials that can be recycled and repurposed? Or do you want to design buildings after you finish with the building, it's in a landfill someplace? His speech changed our firm. HOK became, in addition to being experts in building types and diverse and so on, we then adopted a new idea for us, which was we, we do not want to design anything that's not more and more sophisticated, more and more in harmony with nature. And uh, I'll just use one simple example. And again, I don't know if any of you are architects, but one simple example. When you look at a building, office building, let's say, usually they have four sides and usually all four sides are exactly the same. They have windows or glass or something or on four sides. Just think about that a minute. We know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. The, the warmest part of the day is the warmest direction is south if you're in the northern hemisphere, which I think everybody here is. It's the opposite in the southern. 
So there's a part of the building that gets sunshine and a part that does not. The north side in, in our hemisphere does not get sun. Maybe a little bit in North Finland. I take it back, but not too much. So why shouldn't our buildings be designed to work with nature much like plants are? Plants have an amazing ability to take what they need from the sun, but not too much, and to use that energy well. So we began, we committed ourselves as a firm after Dr. Raven spoke to us. We wanted to be world leader in sustainable design, design that works with nature. And the HOK is regularly recognized for this. It doesn't matter what we design, whether it's a big tall building or a school or a research laboratory or a stadium, we want all of our buildings to be what we're now calling just in shorthand green. We want them to be sustainable. It's a rule now at HOK when we begin to design something, again, using the computer and three-dimensional computing capabilities, because buildings are three-dimensional, we actually calculate things that are important, like how much heat is coming into the building from the sun, how much light is getting in, or how much cold is going out through big windows and so on. What are the materials that we're using in that building? Are they from sustainable sources? Can they be recycled? Can they be repurposed? So that has become probably more important in our work than anything. And it's a bigger idea, even than how much idea of diversity that we want to design sustainably. So why am I saying this to you? Well, I think it's important for the world, but I also think it's important for your own business. If you're developing a business of whatever it is, to have a big idea about it. If you do, if you have a big idea, you sincerely hold it as a goal for your firm, it will be easier for you to attract really bright people and easier for you to keep those people because they will share that big goal with you. If you just want to make money or make a profit and have a good time, that's okay for a while. But if you wanna do this for the long term, you need to have a big goal, a big idea. So yep. there, we, there we go. I think I will let, after this question, I will let also the audience to participate and, and ask questions as well. But I, I think I have there's... to say, I'm looking at these nice faces. I, I really want to hear from these people. Yes. So I, I have one more question. Is, is that yeah. uh, you mentioned the sustainability, and I think that's with circular economy, reuse of materials. This is a big yeah. topic for the construction industry. It's, it's part of the... Yeah. Constructed environment is a big part of the emissions we do today. So yes. At least in Finland, it's it's transport, living, and the housing. So it's uh, yeah. those three things. But I, I think it's one of the things we haven't touched yet is is the international cooperation. And this is a topic yes. that in in your history doesn't just link to HOK. It's also something mm. we both belong to building smart today. So would you like to yes. tell a bit about that? And I will yes. open the other microphones in the same. This is, this is wonderful. I get these great questions. So in working at HOK all these years, about halfway through my career, when I was had worked 25 years, I realized that the way we worked, designing, architects design and contractors build, and then building owners take the buildings from us and operate them, that we have a very bad system that doesn't work so well, that doesn't give the best result. And uh, I began to, uh, to wonder why buildings couldn't be better quality and built with uh, higher standards like automobiles or airplanes or computers. The best design in the world today, I think, isn't buildings. I think it's stuff like this. It happens to be an iPhone 11. I'm very lucky to have it. Why is this a good design? Well, it fits in my hand. It's affordable. It's a little expensive, but it's affordable. And with one, with either by speaking or one finger, the whole world is open to me. All the news, 
the work of every library, the map of the world, and so on. And uh, it's sustainable. That is, I can learn all of this sitting in a chair at my own house. Can we make a world that's better in the world of buildings? Because everybody needs someplace, a roof over their head. They need to be warm in the winter and cool in the summer. They need good places for their children and good places to work. So buildings are a big part of the world's problem and a great opportunity. And so 25 years ago, I was one of the founders of of a new organization called uh, Building Smart. And Building Smart wasn't an architect's association or a contractor's association. It was an everybody association. Architects, engineers, contractors, software houses, subcontractors, building equipment and material suppliers, and owners, even regulators. So that the whole industry, because our industry is all fragmented. We're all in our own corners trying to you know, if you're going to solve the problem of the building industry, the architects talking among themselves is not enough. So this is a big tent with lots of participants. And we're basically building a new open set of digital standards that allow the workflows in our industry to dramatically improve so that buildings can get better, architects can do a better job, and the people that own the buildings or that use the buildings, all of you and all of us, have better buildings. And that you take it naturally that, oh, next year, this somebody is going to do something better. We want our buildings to be like that, not like they, the way they are now. And Building Smart is now 25 years old, and it's quite global. Uh, we have chapters in 25 or six countries, many in Europe, including Finland and Germany and France and so on, but also China and Japan and all around the world, Canada, the United States and Australia and so on. We developed these standards. And one of the characteristics in Building Smart that I'm very proud of is that we operate just like HOK on the inside. We're harmonious on the inside. And I, I have a term for it. We have a product that we put out called uh, industry foundation classes. Don't worry about it. It's a computer term. But my term for that is International Friendship Club, that if we're going to build standards together, first we have to be friends and trust each other, and then we can do the work. And this has been going on now for 25 years. We're making some huge breakthroughs, engaging in more and more of the world, discovering who we are. We're coming to, we're, we're coming to a point where the world is beginning to adopt the open digital standards that we're, that we're creating. Uh, I think in my life, Maybe the most important thing I did personally was marry my wife and have a beautiful family. But maybe the most important for the world is not my HOK work, although it sustains me, but my building smart work. I'm very happy to hear that being part a few years now into building smart, I have to say it's definitely unique platform yes. of cooperation where different cultures, different backgrounds, different industries, and different and people with different educations are cooperating. That's, that's yes, the different so languages. Common. Yes. Uh, so we're building a, maybe a, a really, you don't all know what the United Nations is. I think we're building a United Nations that actually works. Because <laughs> maybe we keep the politicians out. Yes. Yeah, that's so, that's so, my own, own idea about it. People who want to accomplish good things together. So I'd love to hear from some of the rest of you. Yes, and, you should now have the rights to open your microphones. So please do. If somebody wants to ask something or comment, I'm very welcome to have a discussion. Yes. I can see Alexander. Yeah, now you're unmuted. Hello. Yes, Alexander. 
Uh, hello, thank you, Mika and Patrick. Very, very wonderful podcast. Thank you both of you. Patrick, this is uh, something very hot topic right now in Bulgaria that uh, I'm an automation engineer yeah. and building automation is very hot right now in Bulgaria, but everyone is talking about it, but nobody knows what uh, is definitely uh, 4.0, let's say trending right now. Yeah, but I'm really happy that uh, I can hear from you. The professionalism from you is uh, very, very good to, to know, and you opened my mind. So in the future, I will look at uh, now different perspective from building automation, energy costing, and very helpful. But we learn every day. Thank you, Alexander. Maybe uh, we need a new chapter for Building Smart from Bulgaria. Yeah. I don't think we have one yet. It will be very nice and helpful. We do have a chapter. We have a new chapter in Turkey now, mm-hmm. which is your, your neighbor. Yeah, so, Turkey are very ahead of us, if I might say. Yeah. But anyway, thank you for your very nice comments. Thank you, too. I think also this is uh, one of the topics which the digital models or the digital copies or twins, what which they're now starting to be called, is, is one of the enabling factors for modeling and also for the sustainability of the designs. Uh, you, you can actually yeah. see how sustainable the building is and, and test it before you build it. Yes, uh, I just say we, we used to, in, in the early days before the computer, we used what we called rules of thumb. I don't know how many of you use this idea. You make an approximation of what to do because you don't have the the computing skill or the computing capacity to make, to refine. But uh, we should get get out of the rule of thumb business and and really digital twins modeling for performance uh, is the future. It's definitely the future. You know that uh, when Airbus or Boeing design airplanes, they used to put the airplanes in a wind tunnel and test it for wind. And they used to get a very brave person to be a test pilot to fly it to see if it works. And maybe if it doesn't, he has to use his parachute. But now they do this. They model wind tunnel testing by a computer. And they have very nice programs that model flyability of aircraft. So they they were able to digitally do what is, I think, basically the equivalent of a digital twin. How is this going to fly? How do we repair it? How long will will it take before we have to change some part or piece of the, of the aircraft. Buildings need to be the same. So do cities. So does everything. Uh, rail systems, pipelines, power grids, everything. Everything that mankind does, we need to have a digital image, a digital copy, so we can actually see what we're doing ahead of time and get smart about this. Okay, sorry. Who else has a question, please? Uh, I have a question. I'm from Turkey, by the way. Uh, nowadays, technologies all over, and the smart house number of the smart house increasing, which is okay. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, many of the uh, population on the earth start to escape from big cities from uh, oh, yes. from technology. Yes. So, uh, what do you think about the technology and the uh, the smart house feature in the oncoming days? Yes. Well, I think maybe if I could just take a big view of this, if I understand your question correctly. There are some things that attract people to, and the whole world has been doing this for more than 100 years. Has been big cities are getting bigger, and the countrysides are getting uh, fewer people. This is partly because of uh, the agricultural revolution that doesn't take so many people to farm because we have better machinery and so on. But 
people like to be together. Uh, even with the pandemic, we still liked each other. And people come to cities for what? Job opportunities, education, culture, good food, entertainment, opportunities for their children. So uh, there have been a lot of debates inside of HOK and elsewhere about this. With the technology, we don't do we do we really need large cities? Can we live in a small countryside? and be good connection with the internet and life goes on, yes, some people will do this. Uh, I personally think that a uh, big challenge for architects and planners is to make big cities livable. Big cities are mostly terrible places for people. They're, they're made for automobiles or trains. They're not made for human beings. And I think the design uh, community, architects and others, uh, have a big job. And only by, by developing some good digital twin information, smart cities, will we begin to get a grip on how to design big places, big cities with a lot of people, but you still have the, the scale for the human, the family, uh, so that it's not so overwhelming, especially in developing countries where people don't know, they don't have this experience yet. So, and we also, the world's a big place. We also want to give people who don't want to live in a big city, a wonderful existence in a small city or a village or a countryside. Um, I think all of those are going to be in our future, but I don't see any change. People, cities have continued to get bigger and bigger in, around the world. And I think that's, uh, that's going to continue to, uh, because people want all those things that cities offer. So technology was mitigate some of that, but I don't think uh, I don't think it will change the direction that, that our development is trending. Is there more? Uh, I think we still have a time for a question or two. So if somebody wants to ask something, can I ask another question? Yes, please. Yes, uh, Patrick, what's your opinion on uh, microfarming in buildings, big big buildings in cities? I, what's my opinion of what in big cities? Microfarming. That's uh, microforming. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. And um, how do you think uh, this in future will take off? Uh, I, I think it's it's an idea whose time has come. If you think about it, maybe you don't know the rooftops of buildings is priceless real estate. You build buildings in a city, and the only thing that's left open to the sky is the roof. And right now we underuse those. We just uh, something to keep the rain out. So all kinds of opportunities are coming to us, including microfarming. Microfarming is really good for some food, foods that go into a salad. It's not so good for uh, other kinds of crops like grains, corn, and maize, and wheat. But yes, my ideal about a city is that uh, cities are gardens. They're not asphalt. They're not concrete. They're gardens. Buildings should be in a garden And they should the garden should be part of the building. Architects are experimenting now with not only garden on the top of the building, but also on the side. The other the other thing that's going on is uh, designers are finding ways for the windows and the wall, the glass walls of buildings to have embedded in it. And HOK has done some of this photovoltaic cells, solar cells. So you make electricity in the building from the sun. Our our goal at HOK is for buildings to be zero net energy. They produce as much energy as they consume and zero net carbon. So yes, all of these things are changing what buildings look like, which is, I think, positive. But we need to be more like nature. And so all of these things that micro gardens and so on, this is all, I think, the right direction for us to take as this global society. I think we I'd love to hear from anybody else if you wish. I think there was so so many ideas and so many thoughts coming. So maybe it takes a while to process all that. 
but I'm on, on my side, I'm very happy to have you in the discussion and, and also obtain the cooperation in the building smart in the future as well. I think there was a lot of topics we could have touched a lot of more. To reading your book, yeah. I, I think there's uh, material for 10 hours of podcast at least. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd, be ha- I'd be happy to come back if I could help, but I've, I've enjoyed speaking with you and, and getting your questions. And uh, I think we, um, we still have one people. from Christina. So please Christina. do. Okay, Christina. Uh, hi, Patrick, Mika, and everybody. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you. Unfortunately, I do not have any question because my internet connection was not stable all the time, so I missed some parts. But I will listen it again because Mika is recording. Uh, just wanted to say uh, thank you. You're, you're most welcome, Christina. Where are you from, Christina? Uh, I'm from Belgrade, Serbia. Okay, fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for thank you all for staying up, uh, spending your evening talking to me. For me, I'm in California and it's a bright sunny morning here, so I'm still having my still having my coffee. Great. But thank you all so much. It's always great to, you know, the future is in your hands, all of you young people. So go out there and do a good job. There's also many thanks coming on the chat side of the recording. And uh, I think on, on my side and behalf of all the participants, once more, thank you. And, and uh, probably we might do another session on different topics later. <laughs> so I'm, okay, I'm very I'd happy. Be happy. Just, just ask. I'll be happy to do it. Yes, uh, I will uh, ask again. So um, thank you. And uh, we will let you continue the sunny morning in California. Yeah. And uh, we, we in, in the eastern part of Europe, we'll get to go sleep. <laughs> That's right. In, well, in reasonable hour. Thank you, thank you thank very you much. All. And uh, yeah. hope to hear from you again. So thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.